1: So, guys, have you ever actually lived through a Brood X year in D.C.?
2: Not in D.C., but I have
3: in Nashville.
4: Wait, it's every 16 years? 17. 17.
3: It's a weird prime number of a year, every 17 years. And I think that, like, we always have those games about who's really been in this town a long time and who hasn't. But if you've lived through more than one Brood X, I think you're an old timer.
4: This year will be my third. Yeah, mine Brood too.
2: And what makes Brood X so
4: special? Like, well, it's huge because I was born here, but moved away when I was young. But I remember coming back to visit in August or like in the summer and the cicada shells crunching under my feet and yes. thinking it was revolting <laughs> yes. and like DC, like I don't know why my parents were so nostalgic because we did not have this shit in California. This plague <laughs> stuff wasn't a thing.
1: So I want to say a word in defense of the Brood X cicadas. First of all, Shane, what makes them different from all other cicadas is that it is a swarm of genuinely biblical. Oh,
2: I know I was just setting up the question. I remember them once blotting out the fucking sun, but
1: (laughs) it is incredible. And they are unbelievably loud. I looked it up once and they are, there can be up to 10 to 12,000 of them per tree. And they, they call in unison in this rasping sound and it sounds like, you know, I would say like a, a thousand engines all kind of scraping together it's, at once. It's awesome.
3: It's like if the Grip house down your block had a Saturday night party with a Harley Davidson. That's
1: it. <laughs> also, they're huge. Oh, great. They're, they're like giant and they fly really slowly.
4: I'm sorry, this is your defense of the (laughs) brood?
1: Oh yeah, so let me give you the defense. They sound
4: like they suck.
1: No, they're awesome. First of all, they are harmless. Uh, They don't bite. Uh, The only damage they cause is uh, uh, they don't even, unlike locusts, they don't eat the crops or anything. They just come out and mate. They are a sex positive. They are out (laughs) And, and proud about who they are. They come out of the ground. They have about three weeks. And I just love them. I think they're fabulous.
2: And i kill all of them.
1: And they're coming <laughs> for I you agree. now. <laughs> Hello,
2: and welcome to Rational Security, the, did I say pariah edition? I'm no, Shane oh, Harris. And pariah. You, uh, a pariah. Pariah. you know, come to think about it, I did live through a brute X here because the last one would have been in 2000. What, not Three. Brute, very bad at math. Yeah, I was here. I remember distinctly in it being totally underwhelming, like I'm just like in DC proper, like not seeing where
3: did
1: you live, Woodley Park,
3: in an apartment building. Yeah,
1: because yeah. I think the the more urban the neighborhood.
3: Yeah, like the, the, in,
2: the, in the neighborhoods, you're not, in half these neighborhoods that we all live in now have all been dug up. So like wherever these little bastards were living, they've all been eradicated by now. But like <laughs> I remember it in Nashville when I was young for much of the month previous to that. And like Ben is not joking. It's I mean, it's
1: it's biblical.
4: Let's do a rational security entomology edition where we'll yeah. bring somebody on. We can talk, experts.
1: We can talk about the plague of locusts in Yemen. Well, it looks like that.
4: And other upbeat topics. Great. <laughs> nice. Yeah.
2: It's all about you know, like the seventh seal on rational security, apparently, now. <laughs>
4: this is great. Are you having a stressful week? Come hang out with us for an hour. Sure. <laughs> we'll talk about plagues against man.
2: I'm pretty sure like the QAnon people are going to be seeing all kinds of signs in
1: Brute X and, and, and portents. Oh, oh, of course! I mean, what? yes. I mean, Don't everything. that's that a portent. <laughs> good God. Sometimes you know that's just portent erasure. It's too much.
2: I am here in a cicada-free studio with my good friends Ben Wittis, Tamara Coffin Wittis, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, everybody. Hi. Ben, I think you're going to be disappointed. I think you're not. It's not going to be as big as you think.
1: That's what I've been told. Two years, two seventeen-year cycles running. And both times I've been like, Wow, it's no joke. All right. I we love it.
2: But in the meantime, on the podcast, this week, a newly released intelligence report officially blames Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman for the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. FBI director Chris Ray says domestic extremism is a metastasizing threat, sort of like yes, and President Biden launches airstrikes in Syria. Uh, Let us start with the news on Khashoggi. This obviously was a report that doesn't reveal a whole lot that is new, I should say. This is actually a declassified report from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, drawing on intelligence that I think we know has mostly been compiled by the CIA, concluding what Uh, We and others reported, you know, uh, gosh, more than a year ago, which has been the subject now of documentaries, which has been the subject of numerous, countless news articles, that it was the crown prince, a.k.a. MBS, who almost certainly ordered the murder of Khashoggi, the Washington Post columnist uh, and prominent Saudi critic, MBS critic. The report is pretty short. It's like two pages and basically comes down to, at least in the unclassified version, Mohammed bin Salman runs every aspect of the security services it's basically unthinkable that people who genu- who actually worked for him and who carried this out would have done it without his knowing and you know we've reported elsewhere as well that that there was a lot more un- intelligence underlying that that really firms up the case so Tammy kick us off with this given the, the report doesn't really tell us more than we already knew but it's significant to have it obviously on the record now. That's not something that happened in the previous administration, and especially so given the president's approach to Saudi Arabia. Um, When Joe Biden was running for office, of course, he promised that the kingdom would, quote, pay the price for human rights abuses, including Khashoggi's death, and quote, that he would, quote, make them, in fact, the pariah that they are. It doesn't exactly seem, though, like the U.S. is turning its back on the Saudis
3: yeah so i i think that this is a this the release of this report and the biden administration's response to it are sort of the first concrete indication of how biden intends to implement the promise that he made during the campaign to to really rebalance the relationship with the Saudis. And this is necessary not only because of their human rights abuses, including this really egregious pursuit and murder of a dissident abroad, um, which you know, puts them in the same category as, as the Russians going after dissidents abroad. But it also because of egregious foreign policy, like the invasion of Yemen, like forcing the Lebanese prime minister to resign, and also because of egregious violations of sort of friendly relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia, including you know planting spies at Twitter and things like that. So they're, the Saudis are in a huge hole in Washington, and that was why there, it was very easy for Biden during the campaign to call them out and use that to distinguish himself from other candidates and certainly from President Trump. And that's also, the problem is so big that that's why the reaction to what Biden did here has been sort of, wow, is that it? The report itself, the release of the report was required by law, but also under that law, the administration is supposed to impose sanctions under the Global Magnitsky Act of every individual that it finds responsible. And if it names the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia as responsible, why isn't he sanctioned under Global Magnitsky along with 76 other people? So I think that's the sort of immediate question that members of Congress are asking. Why didn't you follow the law that we wrote um, and passed on a bipartisan basis? But I think that, you know, then we get into kind of the broader, what does this mean for the actual, quote, rebalancing or recalibration of the U.S.-Saudi relationship? Look, for the United States to label the effective leader of a partner country as a murderer in public in front of the world is kind of a big deal. It's not not a big deal. And moreover... They've sanctioned and named a a bunch of members of his elite private security force, which makes it very hard to imagine that he will visit the United States because none of them will be able to get visas to visit the United States. So I will say it is difficult to justify and disappointing that there are no consequences personally assigned to the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, but it is a reputational hit it is a strong statement. And I think that one debate, you know, that I'm sure they had inside the administration was, okay, so let's say we do sanction this guy, we might be stuck with him as the king of Saudi Arabia for the next 50 years. And then we've, you know, screwed up our relationship with him before he even became king. And there are others who have said, including my colleague, Bruce Rydell, that the United States actually has the ability if it wants to, to try and have some influence over the succession process in Saudi Arabia, and maybe even to prevent this bloodthirsty thug from becoming king. So, you know, I think you can ask a lot of tough questions about that. But that's fundamentally the nature of the debate is how do we deal with the guy that we seem to be stuck with?
2: Susan, then Ben.
4: Yeah, so I have um, a a few sort of thoughts on this, but also just um, before I get to them, Tammy, kind of a specific question for you on, on the final point you just made, which is, right, we've seen Biden come out and say he's not talking to MBS. King Salman is his counterpart. Like, to what extent does it look like the sort of the Biden administration policy is about attempting to practically sideline MBS and reduce his importance? Or is it just sort of Like more sort of signaling of that's the guy who's really in charge and this is sort of like taking swipes at him versus actually trying to reduce his influence domestically and internationally?
3: No, I think that's a great question, Susan. And as a practical matter, if the Biden administration wanted to sideline him, they've already failed to do that because in addition to being crown prince, he is defense minister and our defense secretary, Lloyd Austin, did a phone call with him more than a week before this report was released.
4: Yeah, so I think one thing that's actually really fascinating to see this play out is inconvenient information from the Trump administration coming out to bite Biden, Or to come out at a moment that is not like something strategically convenient for him. And, and I think it's a really interesting question watching this play out and asking how it might play out in other contexts. So this was activity that occurred during the Trump administration. Trump did not respond. He did not respond in the moments in which actually things like sanctions might have been more coercively effective. Right. Sort of this idea of like getting to sanctions a year later in a totally punitive sense when you aren't trying to change behavior. That sort of, you know, there's I think there's open questions about that but because this new report came out not new information just new official confirmation everybody then pivots to Biden and says well what the hell are you going to do about it and i wonder how many how many sort of times we're going to replay this cycle and how much Biden is going to learn each time about attempting to control information and attempting to sort of shift responsibility Back to Trump because, right, Russian bounties, I bet we could come up with sort of a dozen examples right now of just by virtue of new government reports with nothing new happening, no new information, all of a sudden place this major foreign policy issue on Biden's plate at a moment in which he really, really doesn't want it to be there.
1: So I want to suggest that this outcome is not nearly as bad as a lot of the people who are upset at it, about it think it is. This is a guy who is very likely to be the absolute ruler of Saudi Arabia in a relatively short period of time. And whatever you do, you have to hedge against that possibility that he will be your primary interlocutor, Bloodthirsty though he is. Moreover, this is a situation that arose not under your rule, not under your administration, but under the prior administration, and was all but actively embraced by the prior administration, which did everything but congratulate uh, MBS for the successful killing of uh, Jamal Khashoggi. Third, what are you attempting to do here? What the goal is, is to send a very strong message that we will not respond to things like this as the prior administration did. Uh, There's a new sheriff in town. And so the strategy is, A, don't protect them from the truth, but also don't do anything retroactively that you're going to uh, regret or is going to cause serious friction in the relationship, and the hope is that by naming and shaming, you create a real understanding on the part of the Saudi government that they can't do things like this on your watch. And I think it's a it's an open question whether that'll be successful or not. But I think it's a pretty reasonable, quite apart from the legality, a pretty reasonable initial approach at the problem?
3: Yeah, look, I, it, it's not difficult to make a case of sort of a pragmatic case or a realist case or a national interest case for not, you know, putting the crown prince of Saudi Arabia up against the wall proverbially. Um, that said, there are ways to achieve that goal that are also more effective at sending the signal that you just described than the way they did it. You want to do something that is sufficiently credible that you don't spend the next four days defending it publicly by falling over yourself to find things in the recent Saudi record to praise, like the fact that they released from prison after sentencing two people who should never have been jailed in the first place. And and whom they released prior to the inauguration. So you can't you know, you shouldn't even take credit for it. When Jen Psaki is in the position of defending the White House's decision by hooking American decision making to such thin reeds, it's because they didn't what they did wasn't credible enough. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, you know, there are a couple questions I would ask here, and I don't know because the administration hasn't spoken about it somewhat mystifyingly to me. But the murder of Jamal Khashoggi isn't just a US Saudi matter, it's a global matter, just like the poisoning of Skirpal in London was a global matter. In the Skirpal case, the Trump administration coordinated with other governments and had an international response that included expelling. Russian diplomats. Why is the U.S. doing this all by itself? The Biden administration, which wants to, you know, show that it it works together with allies and we're stronger together. Why are we doing this unilaterally? That's number one. Number two is, why hasn't the Biden administration laid out, in addition to whatever steps it feels it needs to take in response to the ODNI report, why isn't it laying out public expectations for the Saudi government about its behavior and its policy choices if the, you know, if the need is to sustain a functional relationship? Frankly, the burden for that is on Riyadh. They're the ones who dug this hole, and they're the ones who need to climb out of it. And so now we find the Biden administration, four days after releasing this report, falling over itself to explain why it's bending over backwards to repair the relationship. That, that means they didn't do a good job.
2: Can I just offer a cynical answer maybe for your first question, which is, you know, Vladimir Putin and Russia are international pariahs, perhaps in part because unlike Mohammed bin Salman and the Saudi government, they don't shower other countries with money.
3: Russia does. I mean, Russian oligarchs showered the UK with real estate investments. And well, and, yes. the,
2: and that's why they're a lot, the city of London is allowed to be a giant money laundering factory. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of proving my point.
3: But the UK still expelled Russian diplomats and they were able to do it partly because the rest of us were all doing it.
2: That's true. And I think in Sri Paul's case too, it also is the fact that I mean these were this was a, you know, a former British asset and Russian defector. And it kinda of plays in maybe to some even Cold War political dynamics that everyone kind of knows the motions and knows the moves. And, you know, and we should remember too, like The Brits and Gina Haspel and others like leaned hard on Trump to do that. He wasn't inclined to do it. But it just strikes me that with Mohammed bin Salman, I mean, we saw the way that he just reemerged back on the world stage after this year of kind of standing in the corner because so many people are invested in his money. I mean, there was this telling line even from the financial disclosure for Bill Burns during his confirmation hearing for CIA director where he had to list Christmas presents that he was given uh, as the head of the Carnegie Endowment <laughs> from foreign governments. And it was like Italy, two bottles of wine. France, two bottles of wine. Saudi Arabia, Super Bowl trip. Like the Saudi government takes you to <laughs> the fucking Super Bowl and France gives you, like, you know, a bottle of Chateau Neuf de Pop.
4: <laughs> well, I did not even know that. That's amazing. Yeah, a, I mean, but, I would have rather have the wine than the Super Bowl tickets. Oh, just for she, totally, <laughs> God. One person's opinion.
2: I'm with you. I'm with you. Anyway, we'll move on to the next topic. But I do just wonder the degree to which, I mean, you know, it just seems like Mohammed bin Salman's policy, his foreign policy has largely been, you know, shower people with money, you know, make the Saudi investment fund essentially, you know, the equivalent of your foreign ministry. Uh, and then when you do horrific things, people will slap you on the wrist and then say, okay, maybe you've been in the corner long enough, you can come out again.
1: This episode of Rational Security is brought to you by the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, our sponsor. <laughs> yeah, that, <laughs>
2: that will never happen as long as I am in this chair. <laughs> that
4: is not happening. stiffs.com yes. KSA, No. <laughs>
2: But you can even look at a film like *The Dissident*. I mean, which is, I mean, hopefully will be up for you know an Oscar uh, soon that Brian Fogel did uh, about this, where you know you can take movies like that that reach a global audience and have some effect, perhaps, on the kingdom's behavior by reminding you know corporations and governments this is who you're dealing with. But you know, even that has a shelf life, it seems to me. And so I just, I guess, I'm just very skeptical that this report you know, coupled with the administration's, you know, response is really going to change the behavior all that much, even though I'm sure that the Biden administration would much rather have someone else, you know, uh, sitting on the throne eventually than Mohammed bin Salman.
3: I, you know, I, I just have to hold out hope that there's, that there was more substance to their conversations than the Biden administration has been willing to publicly disclose. Right.
2: All right. Let's talk about Issues closer to home. Not cicadas, but other genuine threats.
3: Other loud, annoying threats. Yeah,
2: (laughs) yeah, indeed. (laughs) Indeed. Things that lurk underground and then Uh, come out and you didn't realize how many were there. Uh, Chris Ray, the FBI director, testified on Tuesday about the Bureau's handling of intelligence leading up to the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Uh, He noted, reading from our coverage here, that he had long warned about the rising tide of such threats as the domestic terrorism caseload roughly doubled over the past year. He reminded members of Congress that, quote, we have significantly grown the number of investigations and arrests. By the end of 2020, there were about 1,400 such cases, and after January 6th, the figure ballooned again. Domestic terrorism, quote, has been metastasizing around the country for a long time now, and it's not going away anytime soon, Ray said. Wherever we've had the chance, we've tried to emphasize that this is a top concern. So, Ben, you've complained for several weeks now that Ray hadn't spoken publicly about the January 6th attack uh, and, of course, hadn't had the opportunity to put in context of the broader domestic extremism problem, as he did this week. So what did you make of his testimony? What did you take away from it?
1: Imagine, if you will, that on 9-11 or a month after a month and a half after nine eleven, Bob Mueller had been in office for three and a half years, and an intelligence failure of the magnitude that led to nine eleven had happened. And he went up to Congress to testify about the FBI's institutional performance, and he said, "Well, we have a lot of investigations of of." Islamic fundamentalist uh, terrorists around the world. And that number has grown under my leadership. I've said to you on a number of occasions that this is a top priority item. Uh, And so I've really been warning about this. And by the way, we found out the day before uh, 9-11, we found out on 9-10 that there was a, you know, important information about possible airline hijackings and flying them into airplanes. And we sent an email and alerted the other agencies that there might be something going on, but I didn't pick up the phone. I actually didn't even know about it. He would have been raked over the coals. And this is exactly what Chris Ray did yesterday. He went up there having developed relatively anemic intelligence about what was going on having communicated the intelligence that they did develop in a pretty lackluster sort of way, and having not even himself been aware of the intelligence the FBI developed. And the members of the Senate Judiciary Committee gave him a pass. Uh, There was not a single tough question asked, uh, or there were a few mildly tough questions, but there was none of the incredulity that I would have expected. And by the way, there was not a single question on the frickin' elephant in the room, which is the role that implicit bias plays in the intelligence failure that took place. And that is that the FBI is largely composed disproportionately of conservative-ish white men uh, who... Don't look at conservative white men and see terrorist threats. And if you want an explanation as to the FBI's intelligence failure, that is a big par- should be a big part of the conversation. It never came up, and so I don't have a problem with what Chris Ray did yesterday. Chris Ray went up and represented his agency. I have a huge problem with the institutional performance of his agency in the run up to January sixth. And I have a huge problem with members of the Senate Judiciary Committee who would really mind if there were an intelligence failure of this magnitude involving uh, al-Qaeda, but who just seem to think it's kind of like business as usual. And they had a very polite hearing with him and did not rake him over the coals about this yesterday. I find it bewildering. And I got to say, if I were a Muslim... I would be just outraged and I am outraged on behalf of you know the Muslim American community at the double standard that that the FBI seems to face even from liberal members of Congress.
4: Yeah, so I thought there was a lot of uh, sort of interesting features. I didn't watch all of the testimony, but sort of watched bits and pieces of it. First, I thought sort of the, the big interesting takeaway for me and, and the kind of the question I had was, are we going to see a different Chris Ray post-Trump? So he sort of navigated his tenure, um, including, by the way, being completely MIA in the days following the Capitol riots, like the, the insurrection. No press conferences, put out lo- like the field agents in D.C. to, to face the press on this issue is no information coming out of the bureau itself. I think there was a little bit of a belief or suspicion that like, maybe Chris Ray was just in self-preservation mode. Like, The worst thing that could happen in his tenure and in his view, and, and maybe accurately so, was for him to be fired and Trump to be able to put somebody else in the position. And so he was going to take this very sort of not visible kind of restrained approach. I think that what we saw yesterday was uh, sort of the repudiation of that. Like this is who Chris Ray is. There is no post-Trump Chris Ray unchained. Biden says he has no intention of firing him, and so he's not afraid of his losing his job. And he's like ready to take some big swings, kind of in any direction. I, I think we see like what we've seen for the past four years: this person who really doesn't want to ruffle feathers, really wants to be sort of institutionally conservative, doesn't want to engage in any kind of criticism of any political actors, even whenever it's plainly the case. Right? Doesn't want to use particular terms and get sort of drawn in. And and his posture is very much about like defensively not wanting to get dragged in to any of that. And I thought that was on really full display. I agree with everything Ben said uh, about sort of the oddity of the moment, although I, I think there's sort of a larger policy question we have to ask ourselves about what does sort of January 6th mean? So on one hand, the task before us is to understand what happened. What were the intelligence failures? What happened with the chain of command in order to prevent it from happening again? And January 6th is a little bit like a 9 moment in that it's a moment in which we see the federal government reorganizing itself around an appreciation of the threat. And just like 9 became a moment in which suddenly the federal government and federal law enforcement organized itself around countering a large-scale mass casualty internationally coordinated, centrally planned major terrorism event, as opposed to the other types of terrorism events that could have occurred and and have occurred in sort of the intervening years. And so I think the question right now, separate and apart from uh, who's responsible for the failure on January 6th, is what is the lesson and what is the policy orientation moving forward? So I think there's been an awakening on the immediate and violent threat of right-wing extremism, this sort of QAnon thing, these militia groups, like there is a new uh, and direct connection. Um, But whenever we think about how do we prevent this kind of intelligence failure from happening again, I don't think we're really worried about a capital insurrection, something that presented such specific weird issues of the Capitol police and the president and, right, sort of Understanding what happened there, like learning those lessons, maybe it's a good thought process or or thought exercise, but it's not helpful for planning moving forward. And the thing that was missing yesterday was I heard Chris Ray using the term domestic terrorism, talking about the need to focus on this, but not explaining what he needed not explaining, not sort of attempting to marshal resources of, okay, we're taking this moment to say this is an important threat. We're going to take it more seriously. I need money. I need laws. I need more buy-in. I need people to understand rhetoric, right? And sort of moving us into the next phase of conversation, something I expect actually Merrick Garland might be pretty vocal about considering sort of his history with the Oklahoma City bombing and the McVeigh prosecution. And so I was just, I was struck by, The lack of um, statements from Ray, sort of forward moving and the timidness and lack of curiosity on the part of Congress in understanding what is the nature of this threat? And are, are we worried about an insurrection? Are we worried about a bomb going off in a federal building? like, what are we worried about here? What do you need? How can we prevent this? It was this weird, like, well, who didn't call the Capitol Police Chief? And next time there's an insurrection in between the transition and inauguration period, like we should have a red phone that you can pick up. It was just this weird sort of, I don't know that you guys understand the point of this. And Ray did not seem interested in leading them to, to that really important forward national security conversation. And so the question is, Who in the Biden administration is about to take up that mantle and step into the void? Maybe Merrick Garland, maybe the Department of Justice, maybe Jake Sullivan. Like, Who is going to take that role about the future of domestic terrorism and national security focus and law enforcement priorities?
3: Yeah, look, I think that's a great question. But I also think we have to recognize that members of Congress are focused on what they're focused on, not because they think those are the right policy questions, but because they just went through a really traumatic, dangerous event and they're they are still struggling to process it. And because they personally faced the threat. They want answers on all the questions about exactly what happened and why did it take so long for this phone call to get returned and so on. And I think it's going to be challenging for them to think to do the forward looking work that you're describing, Susan, and that I absolutely agree needs to be done until they get those answers. And that's human. And maybe we wish that they could just, you know, knuckle down and worry about the future threat. But that's Chris Ray's job. And it does sound like he's on it. About his sort of timidity about the politics, I I guess I have a different view, which is that we, if we fully understand the scope of this challenge of domestic extremism cultivated by uh, political actors over the last years, then we need to understand that the FBI is not going to address all parts of this problem, nor should it. We need a division of labor. The FBI's job is to investigate and enforce the law. And it's the job of other parts of society, including political elites, including cultural elites, including civil society organizations, the president of the United States, to call out the obvious connections between, quote unquote, peaceful political actors and their rhetoric and their money and their organization and the violence perpetrated by domestic extremist groups, every form of extremism has ideologues and financiers as well as people who pull triggers and you cannot expect the fbi to get into you know what josh hawley said and how that affected the terrorism group that's not their job Um, so i just think that we need to we need to cut him some slack on that one and we need to hold others accountable in our society for doing that work
1: two quick things the first is there was exactly one senator on the Judiciary Committee who channeled Susan's forward-looking point precisely, uh, but she's not going to like who it was. Susan uh, sounded a lot like Lindsey Graham just now. And <laughs> Lindsey Graham asked Chris <laughs> Ray. Do you mean in her accent as well? <laughs> no, I just mean the substance of what she was saying. And I actually give Lindsey Graham credit for sounding like Susan. Um, he His whole line of questioning was... Are there additional resources you need? You know, after 9-11, we really bulked up. uh, The threat has grown since then on the domestic side. Have resources, have authorities kept up with it? He was thinking in the language of what what more do you need? And on on both the resources and agent side, but also on the authorities side. And I thought... You know, he was the. It was striking that he was sort of the only one who was doing that,
3: not traumatized by the events of January. 6th, yes, and, and or ashamed. At all. <laughs> um, so uh, the the
1: second uh, the second point is there is a political undercurrent to this hearing that is really destructive, and that gets in the way both of meaningful accountability for what happened. And gets in the way of the point that Susan was making, which is a you know, the forward-looking how do we deal with this problem? And that is that a lot of the Republicans on the committee are very keen and used basically the whole hearing to try to establish the principle that left-wing violence, a la antifa, is this is a problem on the same order as this right-wing violence and consequently democrats spent a lot of time trying to establish that it's not and so there's this kind of pardon me bullshit cross conversation that's like well your your violent extremists are worse than my violent extremists no yours are worse than mine right chris ray and chris ray kind of caught in the crossfire of this where of course the fbi's position is we don't get involved in ideology we just investigate crimes. And so I do think that that really encumbers the ability to do what Susan is describing. It also, frankly, undermines the ability of anybody to ask Chris Ray the questions that I was talking about, which is how the hell did you not have, given how many open investigations you have, how did you have no intelligence window into what was being planned for January 6th? All right,
2: let's jump back to the Middle East now for our final segment. Uh, The Biden administration just
3: can't get away.
2: (laughs) Well, you know that's kind of becoming that maybe the theme of this segment. It's like in The Godfather, where he says, "Just when I think I'm out, they pull me back in." Uh, The Biden administration conducted an airstrike in Syria on Thursday uh, that officials believe killed a number of alleged Iranian-linked fighters. Uh, signaling its intent, reading from our post coverage here, to use the targeted military action to push back against violence tied to Tehran. Now, the attack on a border crossing station in eastern Syria, the first lethal operation ordered by the new administration against Iran's network of armed proxies, was, quote, authorized in response to recent attacks against American and coalition personnel in Iraq and to ongoing threats. Pentagon Spokesman John Kirby said uh, this is, of course, linked to a rocket attack in which uh, U.S. on um, U.S. personnel, in which a contractor uh, was killed in northern Iraq while working with the U.S. military and another U.S. service member. Was injured. Uh, so, Tammy, coming back to you on this, Biden chose to do this strike without any debate or any real big buildup. He has not talked a lot about Middle East policy, maybe absent the war in Yemen and some Saudi related issues. So, there's that kind of piece on the table. But also, this airstrike has triggered a debate in the Senate about separation of powers. So, talk about some of the politics of this move to strike at Iran and, and kind of where it puts the, the administration in terms of its foreign policy.
3: Thanks, Shane. Look, I I think this setup, I think that's the right way to think about it for now. Obviously, there are very significant military and strategic questions on the table about what this means for U.S. Iran relations. And I'll come back to one of those in a minute. But the, the politics here is interesting. You know, after all of Trump's sort of chaotic public signaling, President Biden seems to have followed the advice that that I often got from an Israeli friend of mine, a former Israeli intelligence officer who would say, you know, if you're going to shoot, don't talk, shoot. And that's pretty much what Biden did, you know, absorbed these rocket attacks on uh, the airbase in Kurdistan and on the embassy compound, took a few days, figured out a proportionate response and just did it. So for Republicans who would love to call Biden soft on Iran as he opens the door to renewed diplomacy, um, this makes that a lot harder. He didn't screw around. He didn't consult. He didn't, you know, to and fro or wring his hands. He just did it. And he did something decisive and meaningful. Now, secondarily, you know, administration sources have been telling the press that they also sent messages through a variety of channels to the Iranians saying, you did your thing, we did ours, like, you know, let's end this round. And I have to note that this morning, 10 rockets were fired on Al-Assad Air Base in Anbar that may, we don't yet know, have resulted in the death of Americans on the base. Um, And so maybe we haven't escaped an escalatory spiral, which was a problem that the Trump administration confronted a lot. But precisely because that danger is there, and precisely because we saw this response this morning, the fact that Biden leapt out—he uh, didn't leap, but responded firmly, let's say—to uh, these missile attacks has provoked a, a little bit of a bipartisan colloquy among the non-hawks, let's say. <laughs> and uh, and the occasion was this morning's hearing, confirmation hearing for. Ambassador Wendy Sherman and Brian McCune to be the deputy secretaries of state. And so first Rand Paul and then Tim Kaine and then Chris Murphy. I may have the order wrong. All three of them kind of went after uh, the administration through Wendy Sherman saying he didn't consult us. You know, we have the power to declare war. It's a good thing he didn't try to use the AUMFs to justify this because that would have been ridiculous. And he may have claimed his Article 2 power in doing this, but that's not good enough. You know, why are we still involved in all these countries anyway? <laughs> and to me, the, the fact that that colloquy happened so quickly in the Senate in, um, in the wake of these events says to me that Biden's got to walk a really careful line. Um, Not just on diplomacy with Iran, but on military action, if necessary, even if it's necessary to defend or reassure regional partners to allow him to negotiate with Iran. He doesn't have a lot of room in Congress.
4: Yeah, I mean, look, one thing that's remarkable is I would bet somebody $20 that I could find a podcast segment from... I don't know, 2013, 2014. And if we were somehow able to remove the specific dates and targets, um, they wouldn't be able to tell if it was a conversation from then or a conversation now. Because the precise, at least whenever it comes to the legal debate, It is like the precise overlap of the issues that existed during the Obama administration and the the sort of the Obama administration approach like is just, I mean, almost word for word. So Biden undertook this action complied with the 48-hour reporting requirement, did so in a timely manner, so sort of acknowledged the law, made the argument that this was about self-defense, claimed Article 2 authorities, that it was not within the scope of the AUMF. The Pentagon spokesperson came out, gave a statement. There was sort of, um, you know, a, a notable uh, return to form of not, of not having a president sort of tweet this out. And, right, the sort of progressive wing of the party was, of the Democratic Party, was Immediately outraged as this is without legal justification. Um, the libertarian right uh, sort of joined them, right? And this is uh, this is executive overreach. And then we have sort of the um, uh, the centrist a- AUMF wonks in the Senate. Um, you know, formerly uh, you know, kind of John McCain, Tim Kaine, now sort of Tim Kaine, Chris Murphy. We see like a new coalition, but the same exact issues, sort of, and the same formulation and and very, very similar, even sort of factual precedent and and predicates here. And so I think one sort of interesting thing is, are we just going to have the next four years kind of be the same thing? And, And everybody plays their part and they play their part each time. And Congress doesn't really do anything. They don't actually pass a new AUMF. They don't really assert themselves, but they adhere to these talking points and around and around we go. Or is there something different now where actually there's more than just congressional talking points and, and there, there really is going to be, uh, you know, uh, more backlash from the progressive wing of the party and, and more sort of uh, movement towards legislation? I, I don't like I, I don't have a prediction on that. I'm just sort of curious, like, is this just the same old thing all over again or, or is this something new?
1: I have a prediction on that. It's the same old thing all over again. For the same reason that has been going on since 9/11, and actually, really, since Kosovo, and that is that uh, the executive branch has the guns, and the Congress, the actual congressional power here, the one that really has teeth, is the budget power, the appropriations power, which they will not use. And if they're not allowed, if they're not going to use it, then. Everything else rounds to zero uh, or rounds to congressional sentiment, and the executive branch will do what it wants, at least in micro deployments of force around the world. It will do what it wants, and Congress will sulk about it, but won't be able to actually muster the energy actually to do anything. And by the way, even if they repealed some azumf and passed something else. Uh, Because this was rooted in the Article II self-defense power, it could have happened anyway. And so basically, the executive holds all the cards except one, and the one real card Congress holds, it won't play. Therefore, Congress loses. The executive will continue to uh, do whatever it wants in these micro deployments of force around the world.
4: And Ben, is there anything in your mind that would change that? Like, is there any event that would happen that you say, well, if X happened, we might actually see something different? I mean, are we doomed to this for the rest of time? Mm-hmm. Like, are we going to publish a lawfare article on this issue <laughs> once a month until yes. like we both die? Yes. Probably. Asking for a friend. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I, I Probably. And, and query whether that's
1: really that bad, right? So we're not talking about major deployments of force, like invasions of countries. When we've done that, Congress has gotten involved and in passed authorizations. So we're talking about, you know, something between something in the space between self-defense actions and sort of small and medium-scale deployments under the AUMF. Some of them get a little bit bigger, like the Iraq deployment, but I think the thing that could happen is you could have a major event that caused Congress to pass an AUMF, a new one that sort of superseded the others. So for for example, imagine there were another 9-11 and or another major attack that required a major military response that was really outside of the current AUMF. But I think that the truth is that for all that Tim Kaine and I love the work that Tim Kaine has done and I've, you know, talked to him about it and I, I I really applaud it for all that he and Rand Paul and Rand Paul's work on this has been much less coherent and smart. And, but it's, I don't doubt that it's passionately felt You know, the truth is that this does not cost Congress very much. And, you know, the Congress gets none of the political accountability for these strikes, all of the ability to praise them and none of the, you know, blowback when they go badly. And so I, I think this works pretty well for Congress, despite whatever protestations they may give.
2: All right. We're going to move on now to a very special object lesson. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, a devoted Twitter user and clearly budding genius screenwriter <laughs> at Cross Between, uh, who uh, he just goes by Robert, so Robert, this is your moment. Decided to write a "Rational Security" the movie screenplay. Well, four pages of the screenplay based on "Rational Security" the podcast. So he has done this. It's 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 quite a treat. Um, and we're going to do a dramatic reading. Uh, and Zach Frank, our intrepid audio engineer, is going to read the, the narration. This is, if you will, you could kind of imagine this like being what runs like right before the, like, you know, by the title sequence in the film. Like sort of like how every great James Bond movie has like, you know, the action sequence for like seven minutes to like introduce you to the characters. And I think that's what this is.
3: So here's the theme music. That's
1: it Wasn't the spark for this Tammy's object lesson that we have a rational security IMDb? Indeed. Yes. Indeed. So filled out our IMDb entry. Yeah, so this is the movie to go along the pre-existing Correct. IMDb. This is finally
2: fill it out. Yeah, exactly. It's been in development for a while, and now we're just going to go ahead and do it. So uh, Zach is going to read the narration, and then we'll all, and, end the, uh, and the secondary parts, and then we're all going to play
1: ourselves. So right. Zach, take it Like the IMDb entry says.
0: All right. This is Rational Security the Movie by Twitter user at CrossBetween, based on Rational Security the podcast. Interior, Brookings HQ. And across the high-tech Brookings HQ. Open floor plan with computers and desks everywhere. Big screens on the walls with world maps on them. People rushing about working. Passing off thick manila folders. Typing. Oh, sure. Et <laughs> cetera. Looks, like <laughs> looks like a 24 command center set. Interior. Ben Wittis office. Ben Wittis, played by Steve Carell. Brookings senior fellow. <laughs> Tough but fair in command of HQ. Sits behind his desk, looking through a pile of papers, and says, in astonishment, Good God! He pushes the button on his phone for the intercom.
1: Please come here. It's urgent.
0: Fogel, woman, twenties, enters his office.
1: Assemble the team, pronto. I want them all here and ready. In six hours. No excuses. You got that?
0: Fogel nods and turns to leave the room. And Fogel... Don't forget the scotch.
3: Dun, 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 dun,
0: <laughs> Cut two montage. Split screen of three watches on wrists that all light up with alerts. Zoom in on the first <laughs> wrist. Exterior, day, Middle East. Overhead shots of Middle Eastern deserts. Camels, a Cosba. Playing over it is a muzzin lake, singing <laughs> that you hear in every movie showing the Middle East. <laughs> Interior. <laughs> Interior, <laughs> in the conference room. Tammy Kaufman Wittes, played by Lisa Edelstein, expert U.S. negotiator and diplomat, tough as nails and sharp as attack, beautiful but doesn't know it, sits on one side of a conference table. Sitting across from her are a dozen negotiators in Arab garb. She looks down at her watch and sees the alert.
3: Gentlemen, I'm afraid we've reached the end of this discussion. Those are our terms, take it or leave it. Either way, I must be leaving now.
0: Please wait. We agree. We agree to your terms.
3: Fantastic. You can hammer out the details with my staff. Good day.
0: Tammy turns and begins to walk out of the room with her retinue of staff in tow. Cut to interior day hallway.
3: Get my chopper ready to head back to the airport and tell them to have the jet waiting for me. I need to head back to D.C.A.S.A.P.
0: Yes, ma'am. I believe we can have the helicopter ready in 20 minutes.
3: I want it to be wheels up in 15. Make it happen.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, ma'am. Tammy outpaces the staff as they look at each other behind her back with astonishment and excitement. Hearing their impressed whispers, Tammy smirks amusingly to no one in particular.
1: Cut
0: to exterior day Middle East. Pan across the skyline of the city as Tammy's chopper flies low over the city to the airport.
4: Ooh, so, so <laughs> your help. own low flying
0: helicopter, Tammy. Yeah.
4: Cut to. It's like in- the end of the usual suspects. <laughs>
2: so good. She's having her revenge.
0: Cut to Interior Day, Suburban DC Home, Kitchen. Susan Hennessy, played by Allison Bree. Brookings good deep choice. state operative, ice in her veins, but with, a de- but with a joie de vie and devil may care attitude. Beautiful, but doesn't know it. Looks down at the blinking alert on her wrist.
4: Bloody hell!
0: Susan walks that in. That was my the... British accent, by the way.
4: Yeah, it says in British, <laughs> in British
2: accent.
0: Yeah,
2: she's secretly British.
0: <laughs> Susan walks into the living room, which we're cutting to, and heads over to her child playing with toys.
4: Sweetie, mommy has to head to the store. She'll be back in a little bit. This
0: is an American
2: accent, to be clear. So now she's hiding her true Britishness from her And
4: this ch- is how I talk to my children. Yes. Sweetie. 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 In a nice voice.
0: We cut to a series of shots. Interior, day, Susan's bedroom. Susan pulls a silver Halliburton suitcase out from under her bed. She opens it. She pulls out a Glock 17, a throwing knife, and an earpiece. She puts the earpiece in her ear. She racks around into the pistol and shoves it in her purse, raises her pant leg, and slides the knife into her boot. She shoves the closed suitcase back under her bed as we cut to Susan's kitchen, where she walks into the room toward the door to the driveway. Susan's husband is in the kitchen.
4: Honey, I have to go to the store. I need to pick up some garbanzo beans.
0: (laughs) Okay, dear. Hey, sweetie? Yes? Please, be careful out there. Susan laughs as she throws her hair back. She winks, makes a kiss at her husband, and exits as we cut to an exterior late morning private beach house in the Hamptons. Shane Harris, played by Michael Fassbender. Intrepid, in,
4: intrepid investigative reporter. Excellent casting.
0: Unflappable daring doer. A cross between Patrick Fermer and a young Che Guevara. Beautiful but doesn't know it. Lounges on a beach chair admiring the sea. Dressed in a white linen suit and straw Panama hat. Martini in one hand, cigar in the other. He looks down at his beeping watch.
2: Oh, well, it was good while it lasted.
0: Shane flicks the rest of his stogie 15 feet away into an ice-filled champagne bucket housing two upturned bottles of Krug. He casually reaches over, knocks back the last oyster on the tray next to his perch, and gulps the dying ounce of his martini.
2: Shouting to Joe off-camera, Sweetie, I've got to head back to D.C. You wouldn't mind terribly if I took the Jag, would you?
0: (laughs) Oh, honey, would it be all right for you to drive the Aston? I've got to head to the market later.
4: Of course not, dear. That Washington Post salary benefits, man.
0: <laughs> He's gonna drive over to Ina Garten's house. He'll be fine. Right.
4: It'll be fine.
0: Cut to a Hampton driveway in the late morning. Shane emerges from the house dressed in a stylish black suit and tie with black sunglasses and perfectly coiffed hair, looking like Marcello Mastriani. He lights the cigarette <laughs> lazily hanging from his lip as he walks to the car. He jumps in a nineteen fifties Aston Martin and peels out like Magnum fucking P.I. As we transition to Brookings <laughs> HQ. Night. As the music comes up. (laughs) All four members of the team, Ben, Tammy, Susan, and Shane, all walk toward the skiff-like conference room. All four members enter the room and close the door behind them. We hear the clunk of hydraulic locks secure the door of the conference room. Superimpose the title card. Rational Security, the movie. We hear the clinking of ice in a glass, and then Shane says... So... (laughs)
3: Yes, <laughs> and seen. Yes, Zach, Excellent. thank you so much.
2: That was great. This, this, I th- you guys, I think this has a future. I think this one might have has room to grow. I
3: just right.
1: want to point out that I'm the only one who didn't get beautiful, but doesn't know it. <laughs> it's because you do know that because you're you beautiful. Do know, right. yes. i decide If that's because I'm not beautiful or because I know it,
2: you're like the, you're like Kelly LeBrock in those old shampoo commercials, where she's like, Don't me cause "I'm
1: beautiful."
4: the core fiction for me in this is really that my husband would know what was going on in work for me (laughs) enough to know a code word. I mean,
2: Uh, yeah, your relationship is more like it, like true lies kind of thing. I think perhaps she's like, I think he sells shoes. I don't know. You know,
4: somebody once asked him if it was hard for me not to be able to talk about my work when I was at NSA. And he was like, oh, she can't complain about work or talk about legal things. Oh, no, <laughs> that's terrible. <laughs>
2: By the way, I have to say, Joe read this uh, and when he tweeted this, too, he loves it. Basically, he's like he's off camera because he often feels like the Maris of the Rational Security podcast. That's a good. <laughs> like he's a real character, but never seen. Yeah, exactly.
4: He's, he, it's more he's the Charlie to Charlie's Angels. There you go. There, you go. there
2: you go. Yeah, yeah. Well, Robert, you, uh, you, I think you've nailed everyone pretty, pretty darn well here. That was delightful. Our hats off to you. Thank you. This is why we have the best fans in the world, you guys, is that somebody actually sat down and wrote this, and it's pretty darn good. Uh, and it's a great way to go out. Uh, that brings us to the end of the podcast, but not Rational Security, the movie, which is just beginning. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. dot uh, I don't think we have like actual stills yet from pre production of the film, but like you know, once we get those, like us be on...
4: running with like a bomb going off behind us, like wind in of... our perfect hair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly.
2: Mm-hmm. Explosions, martinis. Mm-hmm. I mean, I ha- I have the capability to make all these things right now, so we could put those up on, you know. I'm, I'm waiting movies. for
3: the Aston Martin, personally.
2: Oh, totally. totally. I'll or the Jack, Jack, Jack. whichever is available. Yeah. But you can find us. You can follow us on Twitter at r a t l security. You can still find us, of course, on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and a review. It really helps us out. And make sure to share the podcast with your friends. Click that nice little arrow share button thing. And let Tell him Michael
3: it. Fassbender's in
2: it. Yeah, exactly. Tweet it at Michael Fassbender. He should be listening to this. He has a stake in this now. I mean, he could get like a producer credit out of this. Come on, man. Our audio engineer and, of course, our magnificent narrator this week is Zachary Frank from Goat Rodeo. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. I think music this week is by me and my band, uh, my 70s TV theme song band, which I'm going to name Magnum Fucking P.I.,
4: yeah, <laughs> I love it. Mm-hmm. Right? It works. Wait, but who's going to play Sophia Yan?
1: Oh, wait a minute. Isn't the song, isn't this week's song the music that plays whenever a movie, uh, you know, shows a scene of the Middle East? <laughs> exactly.
0: Like the call to prayer. call to prayer.
1: It's
2: good. The theme yeah. song to Tyrant. <laughs> Just kill me. Short Oh yes. Uh, Sophia Yan will definitely not be participating in any of this. I think she's out (laughs) by this point. Uh, On behalf of my good friends Ben Wittis, Demarkov and Woodis and Susan Hennessy. I'm Michael Fossbender. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.
0: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?